Have you ever seen the Northern Lights? Has anybody ever seen the Northern Lights? Two. Three. Two and a half. Yeah, three. Maybes. We got some maybes. We got some yeses. I've never seen the Northern Lights. I think we have a picture of the Northern Lights. Do we have one? Stunning. Beautiful. I've never seen the Northern Lights, but that picture makes me want to see it. For those of you that have seen the Northern Lights, does that picture do it justice? No. (laughs) I'm seeing some heads shaking no. There's something else that I was reading about this week. I was doing my usual thing this week, like reading on things such as moss. Don't you read about moss every week when you're just normal, every, everyday reading? Somehow I started reading about moss this week uh, on the internet, and I stumbled across a specific type of moss, and the, the species of it is called the schistostega moss, which is interesting. But what I thought was interesting, it's a little bit timely because we're coming up on St. Patrick's Day. So green is kind of a good theme. So the northern lights are green. And this moss that I'm about to show you is only found in northern climates. And it's only found in dark, cool, kind of damp areas. But it's also known as goblin's gold. Goblin's gold. Has anybody ever heard of this? I just, I got one head shaking. Yes, I'm impressed. This is what goblin's gold looks like. Amazing. It shines. It has this glowing effect in these dark, damp places you normally would never want to go because they're dark and scary. Sometimes in a certain part of the world, and apparently you can even find this in some parts of like northern Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine, goblin's gold, a glowing moss that shines deeply and radiantly even in the darkness. Even in the darkness. I was waiting for some people to come into the church this morning. I was standing out in the foyer, and I decided to walk out the main doors there, those big blue doors. And I just was struck how bright it was outside. Maybe it was the time change. Maybe it's just the time of year. But going from a a building with, you know, these uh, dark wooden panels, and then you walk outside, and the sun hits you in the face. Brightness. Glory, you could say. Goblins gold, northern lights. There's certain things in the world, staring at these lights too kind of has the same effect. If you haven't stood up here, we have these lights to help with the camera. Bright, blinding lights that help you see things in a whole new light or perspective, you could say. So we're going to get into our text this morning. Before so, I'm going to give you a couple of biblical introductions. Moses in Exodus 33:18 says, God, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. In Daniel 7, again, if you've been in our Wednesday night Bible study, this has just been tying in so beautifully to the text in Mark the last few weeks. Daniel 7. I looked and thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were like burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands and thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds in heaven, 
came one like the Son of Man, and he came before the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, including the Hani people, which are in your bulletin, and the Brazilian people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And how about John in Revelation 1? I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I saw one on the, in the midst of seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his waist. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. He held seven stars in his hand. His face was shining like the sun in full strength. Can you imagine? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Hebrews 1, verse 2 and 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his nature. Friends, this morning, I can't do this text justice that we're about to go into this morning. This is one of those texts this week where you just pray, Lord, get me out of the way because the glory of God is in this text and I just want to show up and not make it Not what it is. I just don't want to mess this up. This morning, we're looking at Jesus, the glory of God. We're going to look at the transfiguration story, which was read earlier. And it's just an extraordinary text. It's one you've probably read, probably heard sermons on. But don't ever let this text just brush you by. Because it is astounding when you look at it through the lens of Exodus, Daniel, Revelation, and the rest of the biblical story. Jesus is making an astounding claim to be the glory of God. Whoa. We're continuing on in this story of the Savior. We've been looking at who Jesus is. And today, I think last week I said it was the turning point in the Gospel of Mark. This week, biblical scholars say this is the climax of part one of the Gospel. So up to now, with the story of Jesus, this is, it's reaching a climax because Jesus is showing us who he is. We're going to reach an ultimate climax in a couple of weeks on the cross and at the resurrection. But this is the climax of the first part of this text. Jesus, the glory of God. We're going to ask ourselves two questions this morning and pray that God would would show us the same thing that he was showing Peter, James, and John up on that mountain. The two questions are this. How does Jesus show himself to be the glory of God? And what does the glory of God do to a person when it encounters a person, when it encounters us? What does it do to us? When the glory encounters you, what happens to a person? That's ultimately where we're going to go. But first, we're going to look at the first couple of verses, verses 2, 3, and 4. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to follow along Mark 9, uh, beginning with verse 2. The first question, how does Jesus show himself to be the glory of God? Verse 2, again, Jesus, uh, last week, you remember, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, 
They went up on this mountain, and Jesus opens their eyes, basically, to show them that he is the Messiah. Again, a turning point. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral person. He's not just a good example. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. Turning point. And the disciples recognize it. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody yet, because if people start to figure this out, they're going to want to kill me too soon. So Jesus, again, this week, takes them up on top of a mountain. Again, we talk about mountaintop experiences in life. These are literal mountaintop experiences. Jesus takes them up to another mountain. This time he invites just a special group, just the three. This is like the ultimate small group Bible study that's about to happen. He takes them up to the top of this mountain, and he has something in store for them that would change their life and change their perspective. And what does he do? After six days, verse 2 says, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them transfigured before them. What is this getting at? How does Jesus show himself to be the glory of God? First, what he does in verse 2 is he reveals himself in fullness. He reveals himself in fullness to his disciples. He reveals the fullness of who he is, his truest, deepest, largest expression of who he is. He's showing the full extent of himself to Peter, James, and John. This is the climax of the story, like I said, the beginning of the story. In Matthew and Luke, it does, it has this, it's kind of placed in the same place within their text. But what, is, what does he mean here when it says transfigured? Like, this is kind of an odd term for us today. Like, when I read transfigured, I think of transformers, right? Like these toys that change into different things, and now they made movies and it's like, here's one thing that now changed into another thing, and it's amazing. If you have kids, uh, you know what transformers are. But Luke 9 kind of clues us into another aspect of this. Luke 9 is kind of the parallel passage. So Mark is talking about it uh, in, the, in the terms of transfigured. Luke 9 says that the appearance of his face was altered. He doesn't say he was transfigured. He says the appearance of his face was altered. That helps us out here a little bit. Think back to when, so I read about Moses earlier. Again, when he says, Lord, please show me your glory. When, when Moses would go up to the top of Mount Sinai, he went up to the top of a mountain too, right? When he went to the top of Mount Sinai and was with God and receiving the Ten Commandments, do you remember when he came back down the mountain, what his face was like? It's like this shining glory coming from his face to the extent where the people were terrified. They're like, what happened to your face? You're shining, Moses. And so they made him put a veil over his face to, to veil the glory of God that Moses had experienced. His face would shine for a short period of time. So that's a little bit what you're seeing here with Jesus. His face was, was changed, it was altered, it was transfigured. The word for transfigured here is the same word that we use for metamorphosis. That's really what the Greek word is, this metamorphosis. What's the first thing you think of when you think of metamorphosis? Caterpillars that metamorphosize into a butterfly. We did this with our girls last summer where we got these caterpillars and we watched them over a period of time change and transfigure into a butterfly. Is that, what, is that what's happening to Jesus here? Is he transfiguring from 
a normal human man into the glory of God? Is that, is that what's happening? Is it, is it just caterpillar to butterfly? This is important. No, that's not what's happening. Jesus is not changing here. Jesus is revealing the full extent of who he has always been. And he's revealing it to Peter, James, and John. He's not changing. Jesus does not change. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he's just showing us beautifully who he is. What a a grace, right? What an amazing grace that we sang about earlier that Jesus is showing here. He's not changing. He's showing the full extent of his love. He's not like, again, another way to look at it is he's not like a superhero like Clark Kent who goes into a telephone booth and comes out as Superman and now is going to go save the world. That's not what's happening here in the Gospel of Mark. This is not Jesus's uh, telephone booth moment where he's like doing a big spin and coming out as a savior. He is always who he has been. He's just showing it fully now. And the whole world is going to see it soon. Amazing, amazing thought here. You know, our world, our world currently, with the trans word, transform, transfigure, today transgender is a big thing, right? People that can change one thing into the next. And so as we're talking about changing and morphing, We have to be real careful to make sure we're not putting Jesus into a cultural box that we understand. Jesus is in his own category. And that's what we're beginning to see here about the Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus is revealing himself in fullness. That's one way he's showing his glory. Second way, verse 3. His clothes became radiant, intensely white. I love how it says this next. As no one on earth could bleach them. What a great modern way to put it. All of us have spilled something on a white shirt, like tomato sauce or something, and you bleach it and you try to make it white again. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But this is saying, this is so white, no one could bleach it this way. No amount of OxyClean can make it look like this. This is just intensely white. Again, I wish I could turn these around and blind you with these lights right here, these two things that are shining my way, because that's kind of what I picture his, his clothes being like. So the second way Jesus shows his glory here is Jesus shines forth in holiness. What, is the white, what are the white clothes symbolizing here? His holiness. What does it mean that Jesus is holy? It means that he's completely set apart. He's completely other. He's completely pure. He is God and we are not. I was coming back from the gym in 2013, 2012, wearing my favorite sweatshirt, a gray sweatshirt. And I took it off as I was coming home. And as I got out of my car, I dropped it and the parking lot into a muddy puddle. And I was so sad because it was my favorite sweatshirt. And I took it upstairs and was going to spray this uh, stuff on it to make the stain go away and then throw it in the washing machine. So I grabbed the spray, sprayed it, and the sweatshirt started transfiguring into pink. (laughs) Not what I was wanting to do. I sprayed the wrong spray and it was being transfigured in the wrong way. And you asked Sarah, I'm still lamenting the loss of the sweatshirt because it was my favorite sweatshirt. It was being transfigured. 
Jesus here is being transfigured in the most glorious, beautiful way possible, in holiness. His otherness, his distinction from others is spectacular. Again, if you understand the Exodus story, you can look at this text and this story with just eyes wide open. God appears to Moses in a bright, shining, burning bush and tells him to go set his people free. And then God leads them out into his promised land over this 40-year period. But he leads them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he leads them out. And eventually he comes to Mount Sinai. And you see this storm, lightning, clouds, thickness of God's presence, God's voice, bright, shining, luminescence. And God is there. Friends, anytime you see fire or storm in the Old Testament or even into the New Testament, look for God. Because lightning and fire and storm in the Bible is almost always used as a metaphor for God's presence. And so when you see this storm here, this cloud, this brightness, this voice, it means God's presence is there. It means the Holy One of Israel is there. It's Jesus equating himself with the God of the Exodus. He is the Holy One of God. The third point here of how does God show himself in glory is Jesus is fulfilling the history of Israel by showing his worthiness. So look at verse 4. There appeared to be with him Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Two of the Hall of Famers of Israel's history, Elijah and Moses. We've already talked about Moses a little bit and his connection to this story. But why are these two a part of this story? You can learn a lot about a person by who they hang out with, by who, they, who their closest friends are. Like, for instance, this person's dead now, but he's the best example I can think of. If... if if you started seeing me hanging out around town with Billy Graham and we just were chumming it up and looking like we were best friends, your opinion of me would probably change to some degree. It's like, wow, he's hanging out with Billy Graham. Stephen must be really somebody. He must, have, like, he must be climbing the, the ladder, which you never want to do as a Christian leader, by the way. That should never be your intent. But the point here is just who you surround yourself with can give people, an outsider, a perspective of who a person is. So Jesus here has some special company in a similar kind of way with Elijah and Moses, these two Hall of Famers. And both of them are representing the prophets of the Old Testament, clearly. The fulfillment of these prophets of old. So the last three verses of the Old Testament. What's the last book of the Old Testament? Of the Old Testament. Malachi. Malachi the prophet. Malachi the prophet, the last book of the Old Testament, the last three verses, chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6, talks about the coming of Elijah who will prepare the way for the Lord. He says, he will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the people of Israel were waiting for Elijah to come. And they were expecting him to come. And Jesus is saying here, later in the passage, when they start asking about Elijah, Jesus says, Elijah's already come. John the Baptist is the forerunner for the coming Messiah. He's already come. So the Malachi passage has been fulfilled. So when Elijah shows up here, he's representing the prophets, but he's also representing the fulfillment of what Jesus has come to, to bring to fruition, to fulfill the history of Israel. It says here that they were talking with Jesus. And in Mark, it kind of leaves it as a mystery. What were, what were they talking about? 
just says they were talking. Again, wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall and know what they were talking about? Well, guess what? Luke tells us. Go to Luke 9, verses 30 and 31, and it tells us what they were talking about. This is what it says, quote, And behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and they spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And I learned this week that that word departure is the Greek word exodus. It's the Greek word exodus. Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about Jesus' exodus, meaning Jesus was going to about to lead his people not just out of socioeconomic problems like they did in the first exodus. He's leading his people out of sin and death. He's the ultimate liberator, ultimate salvation bringer. They were talking about what Jesus was about to do, his death and resurrection. You see, glory just means weightiness. It means something has worth. It's heavy. It's weighty. And to say that Jesus is the glory of God, which the word glory does not show up here, but again, all these images point to it. It just means that when you weigh Jesus on a scale, he is pure gold. He's heavy. He's weighty. He's substantial. He's the real thing. And he's about to do the real exodus. Which, friends, we get, to watch, we get to walk through this whole story these next three or four weeks up to Easter. Jesus is the glory of God. Now, what does it mean for us? These are going to be some quick points, but I'm going to throw them at you. Again, I can't do this text justice. Just dwell in the glory of God. But what does the glory of God do to a person when it encounters us? And you get to see what it does here to Peter, James, and John. You know, Peter looks and says, how about we build some tents? For these guys to stay in. And then it, 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 I love the, the honesty of the text. It says here in verse 6. It says he said that because he didn't know what to say. <laughs> he just was. It's like when you get so nervous or so excited. Or so terrified that you just start talking. He's like well let's just, let's just make some tents for these guys. That, so they can stay. That's a good idea. And it says he didn't know what to say. Because they were terrified. They were terrified. So what does the glory of God do to a person? Let me walk through these. Number one, the glory of God awakens humanity to the supernatural. Awakens humanity to the supernatural. Does anybody get a little uncomfortable when I say that? We live in the West. We live in the rational, intellectual West where we deduce things by rationality. The supernatural, we can't prove that. We can't prove miracles. How how is that applied to us? I was, I was listening to uh, Tim Keller talk about the transfiguration this week. He's a pastor of New York City. And he was saying that the places where the church is growing the most in the world currently, places like Brazil, places like uh, Southern Africa, places like East Asia, a common thread with all those places is those are places where the supernatural is much more assumed. People have a less problem with, the, with understanding a supernatural spiritual world than places like America, Canada, Western Europe, where we kind of say, no, that's, that's, that's for fairy tales. The glory of God awakens us to the reality of a supernatural world, an encounter with a supernatural God who does supernatural things, who does things we can't explain, but also who does things that he alone can do. That's the first point. That's what the glory of God does to it. Secondly, look at verse 7. 
The glory of God points us to ultimate authority. Again, most of us don't like too much authority. We like to be pretty independent, do things on our own. But this, ver- this passage shows us a voice, again, a supernatural experience, a voice coming from heaven that says, this is my son, listen to him. As a parent, I've found myself saying that phrase, listen to me, often. This is God saying, listen to Jesus, because he is the worthy one. He is the glorious one. He is my presence for you. Listen to him. The glory of God, when it envelops you like this or overshadows you like we're about to see, it reveals an authority that is above every other authority. The name above every name. The one whose government sits on his shoulders alone. Just... Yeah, again, this is an astounding text. It's, it's a, it's a, it confronts you because it challenges us on the supernatural, the authority, the holiness, all these things. That's the second one. Number three, I think this is maybe the most important one. When I read through this text the first time, verse eight is the, is the, the part that, to me, just the text got giant as I looked at it. The glory of God spotlights Jesus alone. Verse 8, it says, And suddenly, looking around, they saw no one but Jesus alone. Moses is thrown to the side and disappears. Elijah, thrown to the side and disappears. The voice goes back up into heaven. And it's just Jesus. It's just him. He is standing alone. He is on the top of the mountain. He is, he's not a, one among many gods. He's not one among many great prophets. I, I said this quote last week of C.S. Lewis. You can call Jesus a lunatic or a liar or God, but you can't just call him a great teacher. Jesus here is alone, and the glory of God shines the spotlight on him. And notice here that the glory of God is coming out from Jesus. Jesus is emanating the glory of God himself. The spotlight is on Jesus. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, or made his tabernacle, made his tent among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter, in his own writing later, said, We did not follow some cleverly devised myth, when we were made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And this is what he's referring to. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him from the, majest- from the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on that mountain. And Peter says, I've seen this glory, and that's why we're passing it along to you, because we want everybody to see this. Two more quick things. The glory of God transforms a person. The glory of God transforms a person. So again, Jesus is not changing in this passage. He's just revealing who he really is. But Peter, James, and John are changed because of this experience. Again, listen to that text I just read you from 2 Peter. Peter walked away. His life was changed because of this one event. And this was even before the resurrection. 
And that just was more. But when you encounter the glory of God, people are transformed. You are transformed. You are changed from one thing into the next. Second Corinthians says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And the last point, the glory of God gushes out grace. I mentioned it earlier, but this is the culminating point. The glory of God gushes out grace. Why? How? Any time before this, if you were to come face to face with the glory of God, or if you were to touch the glory of God, or if you were to come boldly before the glory of God, you are likely to die because of the glorious splendor and the holiness with which you could not approach. That's the Exodus story. You know, the Mount, Mount Sinai. God says, don't, come in, don't let anybody come near this mountain except for Moses. Don't even let your cows touch the mountain because the cows will die if they touch the mountain because of the holiness that exists there. And now Jesus himself is that mountain. He is that glorious presence. And the grace is this. The disciples don't die. You and I don't die when we look at Jesus face to face. Rather, we're transformed. We're filled with joy. We're filled with love. We still fall on our face before him because he's glorious and perfect and beautiful. But we show our, our, our nativity and our innocence by making comments like Peter made. That's what we do when we come before God, but he accepts us as we are because he's in the process of changing us. And he's showing us that the glory of God is now for humanity and for our rescuing, not for our destruction. All of life is about the glory of Jesus. All of life is about the glory of God through this person of Jesus who's about to show the full extent of his love by marching now towards Jerusalem. So the remainder of this story of the Savior is on a Jerusalem trajectory, going into death, into darkness, into persecution, ultimately so he can lead his people into life. So friends, join us on that journey in these weeks ahead as we walk towards Easter, as we see that all of life is about the glory of Jesus, the glory that he shows us, and the glory that we give back to him because he is worthy. As Javier played, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how could we approach you in ourselves? We can't. But the glory of the gospel is that you come to us. You invite your people to the top of that mountain to experience you, not alone either, but with others. Peter, James, and John came together. And you invite us as a church or in small groups to come boldly before you so that we might see you as who you truly are. Lord, if we encounter your glory, uh, give us the boldness to be changed by you. 
And give us the boldness to, to live for you uh, as changed people. We thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. We anticipate and look forward to these days ahead.